we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. Hello and welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar. We're your hosts. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And I'm Willow Truman. Good God. The holiday season's stressful. It's what, what you, you doing? make of it. It's stressful. It's, it's been it's all just, right. It's a lot. There's just a lot of yeah, family obligations. Yeah. Grandma's birthday, of course, is also like oh, right Oh, well, that's between, a big deal. Dude, it's right between Christmas and Thanksgiving. You go into that Italian restaurant you don't like? No, we went to... um. Who said I didn't like an Italian restaurant? I don't know. I remember you said something about going to these Italian restaurants and you're like, why do we do this? this isn't, it isn't even- Well, she's a better cook. Yeah. 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 But this, this year we went to um, a, a restaurant much closer to home, which is in, in this like fucking built in the damn 1700s building that just feels haunted as shit. Wicked low ceilings and like wallpaper that looks like it's from the 1800s. I love a haunted grandma birthday dinner. It was, she was 87, so that's... <laughs> well, she's not haunted. The The restaurant is. Yeah. Yeah, or yeah, feels yeah. feels like it anyway. Felt old. Yeah. It was good. I had a giant swordfish steak. Oh, fuck yeah. Giant. With like a lobster, um, lobster mashed potatoes. Well, that's one reason to celebrate the holiday season. It's awesome. But it's like right between Thanksgiving and Christmas. You got to see the family for Thanksgiving. You got to see them for grandma's birthday. You got to see them for Christmas. It's a lot. It's a lot of family. How, where am I going to do the, how am I going to get the shopping done? How am I going to get the fucking, oh, stressful. So anyway, that's justification for us continuing our early December tradition, two years running now, of retelling an ancient religious text in a hopefully humorous way. Delightful. Because <laughs> it's easy to put together. <laughs> Last year around this time, we talked about the book of the Watchers, the first book of Enoch. And I don't know why I didn't just keep that going and do like Enoch's whole Metatron bit and shit. I didn't know. I could have. That would have been cool. Should have. Yeah, well, we're here doing this, but this is going to be great. Yeah. No, this week we're going to talk about a text that probably many more people have read and even more have almost gotten conned into buying a bullshit version of it at a music festival. Do do you know what I'm talking about with that? I have no idea. There's these weird fucking thousand yard stare uh, white dudes who like come up to you at a music festival and hand you this like translation and commentary of the Bhagavad Gita. We're talking about the Bhagavad Gita and there's this weird (laughs) thousand. (laughs) By the way. Yeah. These weird thousand yard stare white dudes will come up to you and like give you a bullshit translation and commentary by this like cult leadery guy. They say they're giving it to you, but they get really mad if you don't give them a donation in return. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any money on me, so I was just like, I thought this was a gift. They didn't like that. No, yeah, it's the yeah, old yeah. aura picture scam. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. But yeah, I took yeah. your picture. That'll be. $33. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck all that. Fuck that yeah. noise. They're not They're not acting without attachment to result. <laughs> Fucking losers. So the Bhagavad Gita is one of the most important religious texts to come out of the Hindu traditions. I heard someone use the term Hinduisms before, like plural Hinduism, which I don't like the way that sounds, but it makes a lot of sense. There's a bunch of Hindu religions that all sort of share the same pantheon and shit. Mm-hmm. Makes it kind of hard to talk about. It's mostly shared pantheon with like different importance and sometimes different jobs given to the gods and shit. Right. It's more confusing than Egyptian mythology. And that's saying a lot. You know, the metaphysics is extremely deep 
and it's just simply not one thing. But it's fucking rad. It's wicked cool. Like, rad is definitely the right word. The myths and stories that come out of the Hindu religions are, like, colorful, psychedelic, violent in, like, a comic book way. Multi-limbed. Very multi-limbed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just cool. Like, yeah, it's just cool. Like, cool. Like, I haven't heard that one in a lot. <laughs> no. God. You know, we've been looking into, or I've been, the Ascended Masters have been on my mind too much because my first thought was Dwarge Cool. Yeah. Joe Cool. Well, he's, he was Hindu. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the last time we used that clip. Yeah, definitely. Well, so, I mean, the thing is that, like, the Bhagavad Gita and the Hindu traditions are formed most of the basis for that, for theosophy, for that flavor of, of new age stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Bhagavad Gita might be the most important foundational text to that whole thing, which is funny when you really get into it because it's a lot cooler than they make it out to be. But yeah, it's like the Bhagavad Gita or the Gita is probably the most well-known of the stories of Hindu traditions, at least outside of the Indian subcontinent, that is. It's a poem, an epic poem. That is a small part of a much, much larger poem called the Mahabharata. There's not too much plot in the Gita. It mostly concerns a small moment between the prince Arjuna and the god Krishna. In the Gita as a blue-skinned chariot, chariot driver. In the center of a field of a huge battle about to pop off. Which will explain the setup and everything else in a bit. But it has this, like, unbelievably cinematic quality to it. And, you know, like a good amount of wisdom, too. Which is nice. As any good story should. Yeah. I'm really just enamored with the cinematic quality of the Gita. There's there's something, I don't know, really beautiful about it all. Yeah, the picture that it paints. In yeah, your yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, the Gita is one of my favorites, despite some, I don't know, it's funny to call something thousands of years old dated, but like, you know, the caste system can go fuck itself. And if you want to miss the point entirely, you could critique it as the extolling, as extolling the virtues of dying for your religion and shit. But that would be to miss the point, I think. As always, when we do one of these, we are not scholars. We are not experts. We are morons who think things are cool sometimes and talk about it. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're the village idiots. Or at least I am. I won't talk for you. Uh, I'm a village idiot. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not a fucking scholar. I'm a college dropout, dude. It's fine. That's the disclaimer. All right. So without further ado, let's do what we do. Pull a tarot card and get into the Bhagavad Gita. Every time you say the Gita, I'm just going to think about how Flavor Flav met the the model Bridget Nielsen on the show The Surreal Life, and then they started dating, and his nickname for her was Gita. Just wait till I say Guna. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Why did he call her that? I, I don't know. <laughs> they had their own TV show spinoff called Strange Love. You're going to make me read for Flavor Flav. Now I'm just thinking about a big clock. <laughs> Huh. Two of Cups. Okay. Yeah. I believe that's the first time we've ever pulled that. Known in the Thoth deck as love. It's usually a card associated with romantic love. <clears throat> or loving partnerships. Love. How about that? I'm using today the Pulp Tarot by Todd Alcott, which just shows a happy couple cheersing. They're in love. It's connection. Yeah. It's kind of like, I get it. Like, I get it. It's fine. I'm fine with pulling that. I get it. Yes. But I don't know. I was hoping for something else, but that does work. We'll talk about that at the end. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, so like I said, the Bhagavad Gita is part of a much larger epic poem called the Mahabharata. Uh, the Mahabharata is an epic in the most literal sense. It was composed over an extended period, likely between 400 BC and 400 CE. The tale itself is set much earlier, usually considered to be around the 8th or 9th century BC. It emerged in ancient India during a time of transition where society was moving from tribal structures to more complex state-level societies, and it reflected the religious, social, and moral dilemmas of the time. Just like a lot of epic poems, like the Iliad, the Odyssey, right? Mm -hmm. The thing about the Mahabharata, though, is that calling it long is an understatement. It's fucking long. Uh, About 200,000 verse lines. It's 10 times the length of the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. Wow. Yeah. It's fucking insane. It's an epic. Yeah, yeah. It's really fucking old and it's really goddamn long. Remember when people said epic win? Yeah. That was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just taking me back to a horrible time in my life. I was like... (laughs) You know, I was like, that was the transition between middle school and high school when that shit started. God, we were so fucking lame. Uh, yeah. Still are. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, But traditionally, the Mahabharata is attributed to the sage Vyasa, who is actually a character also in the Mahabharata. Modern scholars think that it's was composed by many people. You mm-hmm. know, probably. The Vyasa is a narrative device who is a, a real person, I think. And it's also told with a frame story. And at one point, I believe it's a frame story within a frame story. Oh, fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's like a lot of... The best type of story. Yeah, there's like a lot of um, really interesting literary devices in the Mahabharata and in, in the Bhagavad Gita in particular that like really didn't... seems like really sophisticated for literature that we're used to from 2,000 fucking years ago. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? A descendant of Vyasa is telling a story in which the grandson of Vyasa tells the story that Vyasa told him about. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's this recursive frame story thing going on. Mm. And the text is divided into 18, into 18 different books, each detailing different aspects of the story, from the genealogy of the characters to the aftermath of the war it focuses on. It's a blend of myth, legend, and history very clearly. It makes no bones about that. I mean, <clears throat> supernatural shit happening all the time. It's very, it's a very unique type of genre that exists in uh, old Sanskrit literature. There is a belief that there's a historical core behind it. Like, it does refer to maybe perhaps something that actually happened, like the Odyssey and the Iliad, but don't know. But over time, layers of mythology, philosophy, and cultural norms were woven into the narrative, turning it into a much more complex and multifaceted work than a simple historical record. And that's also why, like in a lot of other religious texts, you, you get shit like, hmm, that seems a weirdly shoehorned, uh, sec- shoehorned in section about why the oppressive societal structures are actually a good thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you get that a lot. Like that's in fucking in the Corpus Hermeticum. You get that too. Like you got to have kids or you're the most cursed man ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know? There's like a, a real serious defense of the caste system in the Bhagavad Gita. So basically, the plot of the Mahabharata is a dynastic struggle. Two groups of cousins, the Pandavas and the Kauravas, duking out for the throne of Hastinapura. It's got drama, family feuds, betrayals, plots, a whole lot of names that I'm only going to say if it's really necessary because I am getting worse at pronouncing shit every single no, day. No, you're not. You're doing I, fantastic. Dude, I, I do terrible. I'm so bad at it. The core plot centers around this rivalry between the Pandavas and the Kauravas, yeah. both descendants of the Bharata dynasty, so cousins versus cousins. Mm-hmm. The Pandavas, five righteous brothers led by hmm, Yudhishthira, 
are the protagonists. The Kauravas, a hundred brothers led by the conniving Durojana, are their cousins and antagonists. Ah, uh, you know, you gotta root for the underdogs. There's yeah, less yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah there's, there's five versus a hundred brothers. Yeah. How do you get that many brothers? That's a lot of brothers. The crux of the story is the battle for the throne of Hastinapura, the kingdom ruled by the Kaurava family. But it's not just about that main plot. There's a myriad, there's myriad short stories in there, each adding layers to the narratives. There's Draupadi, the shared wife of the Pandavas. She has five husbands, whose humiliation in the Kaurava court is one of the catalysts for the war. Don't have five husbands. Yeah, there's... A lot of drama. Yeah, seriously. But they're all the righteous brothers, so it's fine. I guess. Oh, I guess. They're brothers. Brother yes. husbands? Brother, literal brothers and brother husbands. Sick. It was a different time. <laughs> <laughs> I say that sick half in the positive way, half in the negative way. You know, who am I to judge? Truly. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, Bhishma, the grand old man of the Kaurava family, bound by his own vows and watching the family drama unfold with a mix of helplessness and wisdom. And countless other stories of sages, demons, gods, warriors, all this shit. It's a ridiculous thing. It's a ridiculous fucking thing. Far too much to get into beyond the book we're, the book we're concerned with, the Bhagavad Gita. Our main boy is a dude named Prince Arjuna. He's the middle Pandava brother, a master archer, and a warrior par excellence. He's the hero, the Luke Skywalker, the hero who is on the journey here, right? Also note that he is the middle brother, that... That's important. We'll get back to that. He's got a bit of everything. Skill, charisma, a complex moral compass, and it gets him into a philosophical pickle in the Bhagavad Gita. Mm, morality does that. Yeah. Well, Krishna, who it's revealed is, an, is actually an avatar of the god Vishnu, is a close friend of the Pandavas, especially Arjuna. His role in the Mahabharata is multi-layered. He's a diplomat, a sage, ultimately the divine guiding force of the whole thing. He's a wisecracking, strategy-planning, morally gray character who often steers the Pandavas um, through their toughest challenges and uh, into the slaughter of their entire family. Oh, yeah, that's thanks, fun. Krishna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is Arjuna's charioteer. Before the war that the Bhagavad Gita is about the, the, the big battle of, both um, Durajana and Arjuna, he's the bad cousin Durajana, go to Krishna for help, and Krishna offers them a choice. He's like... You can either have my army, which is a massive force called the Narayani, uh, the Narayani Sena, or they can have him, but he won't wield any weapons or hurt anyone. Durodhyana, thinking practically, chooses the army. Arjuna, knowing that Krishna is, you know, doesn't know that he is Vishnu, but he knows that he's divine, you know, a demigod or something, he chooses Krishna himself. So Krishna becomes Arjuna's charioteer and counselor, guiding him both in war strategy and in the fucking My Dinner with Andre poem that's about to Oh follow. boy. <laughs> Is this a wise choice? Should he have chosen the army? Um, it's an interesting question. We'll get back to that. So the cool thing about the Bhagavad Gita is it sits right in the very center of the Mahabharata, right? Like it's literally in the very center of this giant poem. Many people think that the Gita was initially a self-contained and standalone poem that was inserted into the Mahabharata. There's a case to be made that its inclusion in the Mahabharata adds a meaning that's directly contradictory to the message of the Gita. That is, Krishna is about to lay down some wisdom about how to live. And in the larger context, context, this takes on a meaning of how to live and die in war. And if all this good Krishna stuff was worth a damn, why is he telling Arjuna that war is just? Eh. If you read it as a metaphor, and also perhaps, I don't know if you've been talking with your fucking homie for months about the, his experience at war. I don't know. I think it works. But mostly it works on a literary level so fucking well, it's unbelievable. I'm excited because yeah. I've never read it. So 
the setting is the battlefield of Kurokestra, right before the war is about to kick off. Like, this will end with mostly everyone on all sides dead. The capital city destroyed, fire and blood and tragedy, and everyone knows it. Everyone fucking knows it is where we start. Will you please... Oh, now I'm going to have to pronounce things. I can do it. I, I think you can do it. Then Bhishma, the aged grandfather of the Kurus, roared his lion's roar and blew a powerful blast on his conch horn. And the Durudana's heart leapt with joy. Immediately all the conches blared and the kettle drums, cymbals, trumpets, and drums, a deafening clamor. Standing in their great chariot yoked with white horses, Krishna and Arjuna blew their celestial conches. Krishna blew the conch, called One, from the demon Panchajanya. Arjuna blew God-given. Ferocious, wolf-bellied Bhima blew the mighty conch, called King Pondra. Prince, Yuh Prince Yudhishthira blew unending victory. Nakula and his twin Sahadeva blew great noise and jewel bracelet. The king of Benares, that superb archer, the great warrior Shikandi. This, this feels like I'm reading a fucking Lord of the Rings book where it's like, you oh are. my God, this paragraph is just all names. You're reading exactly where Lord of the Rings came from. <laughs> the great warrior Shikandi. You can, Yumna, you, can skip, you can skip when you can't pronounce a name. All of them. All of them. Oh, king blew their conches at once. They're all blowing the conches. Yep. The uproar tore through the hearts of of men and echoed throughout heaven and earth. But what I love about that is um, all these characters, like our characters, you know, in the Mahabharata, but seeing it just in the Bhagavad Gita, it gives these hints of all these backstories. Like, where did these conches come from? How did they get their names? It's all these warriors blowing these horns that represent kind of who they are in this like massive noise. Just. Yeah. Like, okay. Oh, I have to say, uh, we're using the quotes we're going to pull are from um, Bhagavad Gita, a new translation by Stephen Mitchell, because that is the one to use when you're doing radio about it. It's like rewritten essentially for easy understanding. It's a very good translation. It has good reviews, but it's not like accurate accurate you know what i mean but it's correct so with all this noise going on everywhere and right before this our boy prince arjuna enlisted krishna to be his charioteer and right before the big show arjuna tells krishna to drive the chariot into the center of the soon-to-be field of battle drive my chariot and stop between the two armies so that i can see these warriors whom i'm about to fight drawn up and eager for battle i want to look at the men gathered here ready to do battle service for drita rashtra's evil-minded son so krishna goes okay yeah and so they drive into the very center of the field between these two massive armies at the very center of the field in the very center of this epic poem in the very center of the mahabharata arjuna the middle brother looks across the field at the kaurava army and behind him at his own army and sees family on both sides, teachers on both sides, friends, people, human beings, and the weight of what's about to happen falls on him and he breaks. He throws down his bow. As I see my own kinsmen gathered here eager to fight, my legs weaken, my mouth dries, my body trembles, my hair stands on end, my skin burns, the bow Gandiva drops from my hand, I am beside myself, my mind reels, I see evil omens, Krishna, no good can come from killing my own kinsmen in battle. I have no desire for victory or for the pleasures of kingship. What good is kingship or happiness or life itself when those for whose sake we desire them, teachers, fathers, 
sons, grandfathers, uncles, fathers-in-law, grandsons, brothers-in-law, and other kinsmen, but not women at all. Not in the battle. uh, It's true. Stand here in battle ranks, ready to give up their fortunes and their lives. Although I will say Bhagavad Gita is sexist as fuck. It's fine. (laughs) Part of it being dated as shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is not about that. Though they want to kill me, I have no desire to kill them. Not even for the kingship of the three worlds, let alone for that of Earth. What joy would we have in killing Dhritarashtra's men? Evil will cling to us if we kill them, even though they are the aggressors, and it would be unworthy of us to kill our own kinsmen. And Arjuna whines like this for a while. Well, it's not whining, but at the end of it, which feels tacked on, he starts going off about how this type of kinslaying would break the caste system and thus society. It's like twice as long as what I quoted there about why the caste system being broken would be the worst thing that hmm. You know, there's a few points in the Gita where there's some fucking nonsense about how important that shit is uh, that feels tacked on afterwards and I have to mention it, but I don't want to dwell on it. Anyway, Arjuna ends with this. We're about to commit a great evil by killing our own kinsmen because of our greed for the pleasures of kingship. It would be better if Dhritarashtra's men killed me in battle, unarmed and unresisting. Having spoken these words, Arjuna sank down into the chariot and dropped his arrows and bow, his mind heavy with grief. And then that's chapter one. Chapter two starts with Arjuna hanging his head, tears streaming down his face. And Krishna says, why this timidity, Arjuna, at a time of crisis? It is unworthy of a noble mind. It is shameful and does not lead to heaven. This cowardice is beneath you. Do not give in to it. Shake off this weakness. Stand up now like a man. And Arjuna says, When the battle begins, how can I shoot arrows through Bhishma and Drona, who deserve my reverence? It would be better to spend the rest of my life as a pauper, begging for food, than to kill these honored teachers. If I killed them, all my earthly pleasures would be smeared with blood. And we do not know which is worse, winning this battle or losing it. Since if we kill Dhritarashtra's men, we will not wish to remain alive. I'm weighed down by pity, Krishna. My mind is utterly confused. Tell me where my duty lies, which path I should take. I am your pupil. I beg you for your instruction. For I cannot imagine how any victory, even if I were to gain the kingship of the whole earth or of all the gods in heaven, could drive away this grief that is withering my senses. I will not fight. And it continues, as Arjuna sat there downcast between the two armies, Krishna smiled at him and the blessed Lord began to speak. And oh, this this God, like... Arjun is crying. He has dropped his bow. He is at the lowest point a person can be. And fucking Krishna looks at him and just smiles and starts talking. It's just this like, mm. yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's not good, right? But it's like powerful. Well, it it's such a in the hero's journey. Like we are in the middle. We're at a, a, a climax right at the beginning too. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is where it the Bhagavad Gita turns into technically a dialogue, but it's much more of a monologue on Krishna's part. As I was writing this, I wrote that I'm completely unsure how I'm going to condense this and make it entertaining while still retaining the core of it, but I'm a try. I recommend you all read it because I will not do it justice. But I fucking love that. Arjuna crying at the most shattered point in his life. How can he go on? And Krishna looks at him in the very center of the storm and smiles. And the blessed Lord said, Although you mean well, Arjuna, your sorrow is sheer delusion. Wise men do not grieve for the dead or for the living. Never was there a time when I did not exist, or you, or these kings, nor will there come a time when we cease to be. Just as in this body the self passes through childhood, youth, and old age, so after death it passes to another body. 
Physical sensations, cold and heat, pleasure and pain are transient. They come and go, so bear them patiently, Arjuna. Only the man who is unmoved by any sensations, the wise man indifferent to pleasure, to pain, is fit for becoming deathless. Non-being can never be. Being can never not be. Both these statements are obvious to those who have seen the truth. The presence that pervades the universe is imperishable, unchanging, beyond both is and is not. How could it ever vanish? And this chapter goes on and, and continues on the same trip about how all things arise and pass away, but being itself is eternal, and it's only delusion to think that anything ever truly ends. And then Krishna goes into, and this is one of those parts that people take great umbrage with, saying that since there is no cause to grieve anything, you should be thankful that you have a chance to fight in this great battle. If you run away, it'll bring great shame. And since so much of the rest of Krishna's diatribe is about non-attachment, it seems again like that was grafted on. I don't know. It kind of seems like the whole point of it to me. In a metaphor, well, he says men will, like, basically men will laugh at you. Like, you will bring shame. And it's like, if you're not attached to any, to the outcome of things, like, why would you care about that? If it doesn't matter, I don't know. Just the way it's kind of written is a little funny, but I still think Krishna is right when he says, therefore, stand up and fight, you know? Well, no, it's true. Um, Like if you're at an impasse and it's like, hey, either be great or back down out of fear. Do the thing. Yeah. Have your name be written in history books or go walk away with like a dog with your tail between your legs. Yeah. Therefore, Arjuna, stand up. A big theme in the Gita is that non-action is action. Mm -hmm. It is an action. And that like, if you're, you can still be not acting with the same selfish motivations, the same attachment to outcome that taking an action with attachment to outcome is. It's the same thing. Well, yeah, because his whole reason for not wanting to fight is because he's fearful. He's fearful of the outcome. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. He's attached attached to to an outcome. Yeah, exactly. And then Krishna explains that the way to drive away all sorrow is through the practice of yoga. He does not mean what we think of when we say yoga in the West. The physical exercise is only a teeny, tiny little part of the practice of yoga, which Krishna describes. The scriptures dwell in duality. Be beyond all opposites, Arjuna, anchored in the real and free from all thoughts of wealth and comfort. As unnecessary as a well is to a village on the banks of a river, so unnecessary are all scriptures to someone who has seen the truth. You have a right to your actions, but never to your actions' fruits. Act for the action's sake, and do not be attached to inaction. Self-possessed, resolute, act without any thought of results, open to success or failure. This equanimity is yoga. Action is far inferior to the yoga of insight, Arjuna. Pitiful are those who, acting, are attached to their action's fruits. The wise man lets go of all results, whether good or bad, and is focused on the action alone. Yoga is skill in actions. How do you describe the man whose wisdom is steadfast, Krishna? Oh. Oh, that's, this is Arjuna again. Maybe I'll just be Arjuna. Yeah. How would you describe the man whose wisdom is steadfast, Krishna? How does the wise man speak? How does he sit, stand, walk? The blessed Lord said, When a man gives up all desires that emerge from the mind and rests contented in the self, by the self, he is called a man of firm wisdom. He whose mind is untroubled by any misfortune whose craving for pleasures has disappeared, who is free from greed, fear, anger, who is unattached to all things, who neither grieves nor rejoices if good or if bad things happen, that is a man of firm wisdom. And further on, Krishna says, 
If a man keeps dwelling on sense objects, attachment to them arises. From attachment, desire flares up. From desire, anger is born. From anger, confusion follows. From confusion, weakness of memory. Weak memory, weak understanding. Weak understanding, ruin. And uh, Star Wars fans will see exactly where the whole anger leads to fear. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to that whole thing is directly from that passage. And towards the end of the chapter, Krishna ends this message by saying, Abandoning all desires, acting without craving, free from all thoughts of I and mine, that man finds utter peace. This is the divine state, Arjuna, absorbed in it, everywhere, always. Even at the moment of death, he vanishes into God's bliss. Now, there are 18 chapters here. We're not going to go through each and every one. That would be silly. This chapter, chapter two, hits on the philosophical core of the text. That is the philosophical core of the text. Non-attachment to results, right? That's kind of what the whole fucking thing's about. Except for later on. You know, it's that stuff. If you ever wonder where that stuff comes from, you have the right to your action, but never to, not to your action's fruits. If you ever wondered where that stuff comes from, yeah, it's right there. That's, that's, that's where that is. I like it. I Me think too. There, oh, yeah. There's definitely some stuff here that's, that's good. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Oh, that's useful. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, like, like I said, I'm a huge fan of the Kita. Then Arjuna asks, wait, hold on. I still don't get why I have to fight. And Krishna begins chapter three by emphasizing the importance of action in life. He explains to Ar Arjuna, the mere renunciation of action is not enough. What matters is the nature and quality of one's actions. Krishna introduces the concept of karma yoga, the path of selfless action, where actions are performed without any desire for personal gain. He explains that every action is intertwined with the fabric of the universe and contributes to the cosmic order. Performing one's duty, especially as per one's nature and position and position in society, is crucial. Oh, but what if it's your duty to be evil? Fine. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, even later on. As long on, as you're following your, your cosmic order. Basically. Yeah. Like, he says later on, like, a man who kills without, for no desire of result, that's not an evil act. It's just an act. Like, there's... They didn't shy away like from the Like when Alec Baldwin shot that guy. Did he die, though? I don't know. I think maybe. <laughs> I think so. I, just, I, I shouldn't laugh. I'm so sorry. I'm looking it up. But they definitely, like, in Hindu mythology, they don't shy away from the fact that, like, oh, gods kill. Like, there's blood and violence. Like, that's just, that's part of all of it. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I'd, she. She. I, I think. I don't know. I don't like to know too much about these things. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but yeah, he didn't mean to do that. <laughs> so Krishna says, it's all good. It's fine. I don't, I don't know if Krishna would say that. I think that might be a bit of a stretch. I think Krishna might have a few words for Alec Baldwin. I think he might. Well, <laughs> I, I do, too. Great job in Boss Baby. <laughs> <laughs> and so Krishna addresses one of Arjuna's key confusions. If action can bind the soul to the cycle of birth and death, how can one act without accruing karma? And the answer, Krishna says, lies in performing duties with detachment and without selfish motives. The doing for the doing's sake. By just dedicating all actions to the divine and remaining unattached to the results, one achieves true freedom. Further, Krishna says... Listen, you're a respected warrior. What you do will set a precedent for others in society. Everything you do ripples out and connects with everything else. By being the dude people think you are, you give them 
stability and confidence in their own duties and shit. Like that's what you're Mm -hmm. supposed to do. If he shirks his duty, it could lead to chaos and societal imbalance. The chapter concludes with Krishna explaining the three gunas (laughs) (laughs) or qualities, uh, which are sort of untranslated. Guna is sort of untranslatable and so are the, um, the three gunas. Sattva, goodness. Rajas, passion. And tamas, ignorance. They're sort of these cosmic forces or cosmic vibes that <laughs> influence human behavior. They're the three forces that present in every every single thing. There's a sattvic, sattvic way of there's sattvic food, rajasic food, and tamasic food, right? Like it's it's in everything. It's a really interesting concept, and we'll get back to that later. Can you like balance your gunas? You you're trying it... to transcend it. Like they're sort of the okay. the things that drive some. Okay, some, some. they're not like qualities that you possess. Like you're like thirty because we're we have such a BuzzFeed culture. It's like yeah. Um, I can just imagine taking a quiz to be like, which one oh, of my gunas is the most active? What should I eat based on what? Like you know, because <laughs> there's a whole industry around it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not like that. These are they just describe qualities of of action, of events, of things, of right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Krishna advises Arjuna that to rise above these gunas by performing actions in line with his dharma. Advises Arjuna to aspire to rise above these gunas by performing actions in line with his dharma, thus moving towards liberation. And then in chapter four, now. Arjuna already knew that Krishna was divine of some type, right? Krishna starts chapter four by revealing his divine nature. He explains to Arjuna that I taught this lesson to so-and-so a billion years ago. And Arjuna's like, wait a minute, how'd you do that? You weren't born a billion years ago. Just like, hmm, see... I'm an eternal being manifesting in the physical world whenever there's a decline in righteousness and an upsurge in evil. I'm here to restore balance and dharma. At this point, uh, yeah, Krishna's slowly revealing that he's something much, much more than Arjuna thought he was. You thought I was just a dude? You thought I was just a blue guy? Because he's a blue dude. Yeah, blue That's dude. That's how he knows he's... Uh, Special. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like fucking homeboy in Arrested Development. Yes. He's one of the, the blue brethren. Yeah, yeah. But then Krishna addresses the concept of divine action. Unlike humans, his actions are not born of desire and necessity. They're just there to maintain cosmic order. And just as Krishna acts, atta- acts without attachment, humans too should perform their duties without being attached to their outcomes. He hits this lesson over and over again in different concentrations and from different levels. Um, but then chapter four ends with a fucking banger. Just as firewood is turned to ashes in the flames of a fire, all actions are turned to ashes in wisdom's refining flames. Nothing in the world can purify as powerfully as wisdom. Practicing yoga, you will find this wisdom within yourself. Resolute, restraining his senses, the man of faith becomes wise. Once he attains true wisdom, he soon attains perfect peace. Ignorant men without faith are easily mired in doubt. They can never be truly happy in this world or the world beyond. A man is not bound by action, who renounces action through yoga, who concentrates on the self, and whose doubt is cut off by wisdom. Therefore, with the sword of wisdom, cut off this doubt in your heart. Follow the path of selfless action. Stand up, Arjuna. After Arjuna has been impressed with the importance of both work, which requires activity, and seeking knowledge, Arjuna is perplexed. His determination is confused. He sees fighting and knowledge as contradictory. 
Mm. He opens chapter five by asking Krishna to definitively explain. <laughs> but what should I do, oh master? Basically, he's still, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how to think for myself. He asks Krishna to explain whether the renunciation of work or work and devotion is superior. And Krishna answers that one who is detached from his work's result is the one who is truly renounced. That's what renunciation means. Such a person knows that while the body acts, he, the soul, actually does nothing. Arjuna should therefore do his duty steadily for the satisfaction of Krishna. Impartially viewing the external world, he should reside in his body aloof from bodily activities. By fixing his consciousness on God and knowing that Krishna is the true enjoyer, the goal of the sacrifice and austerity, and the lord of all planets, he, the pure soul, will find true peace beyond this material world. But still get to have some fun in it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I guess I don't know the rest of the story. Yeah, not, not really. In chapter six, Arjuna asks Krishna how a man can train. So yeah, Krishna basically says, in, he's like, renunciation means renunciation from attachment to result. That's what true sacrifice is. You should fix your mind on me at all times. I'm, I dwell in your heart. I am everything is the thing he starts to hint at. And in chapter six, this Arjuna- This is a little gay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little gay. Two cups, I, baby. Two cups. Yeah, no, it just reminds me of like when people write love songs to Jesus and stuff and it like gets a little horny. It's like, give it up all for me. Give, the, give it mean, all to me. And I love Gita that. is a love song to God. Yeah, and it, as it, it should be. Yeah. God is sexy as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, chapter six, Arjuna asks Krishna how a man can train his mind to do these hard things like giving up all attachment and shit the next few chapters get into the practices of yoga the more down to earth do this do that shit right read the book for for more of that and then krishna says to arjuna basically listen i'm gonna let you in on a secret i'm not just an ancient eternal god i'm the only god in fact i'm actually the only thing there is in fact you're looking in a mirror right now yeah yeah uh, and Krishna says, Know that it is the womb from which all beings arise. The universe is born within me, and within me will be destroyed. There is nothing more fundamental than I, Arjuna. All worlds, all beings are strung upon me like pearls on a single thread. I am the taste in water, the light and the moon and sun, the sacred syllable Om in the Vedas, the sound in air. I am the fragrance in the earth, the manliness in men. Day! <laughs> the brilliance and fire, the life and the living, and the abstinence and ascetics. I am the primal seed within all beings, Arjuna. The wisdom of those who know, the splendor of the high and mighty. I am the strength of the strong man who is free of desire and attachment. I am desire itself, when desire is consistent with duty. Though I am unmanifest, fools think that I have a form, unaware of my higher existence, which is permanent and supreme. Veiled in my mystery and power, I am not perceived by most men. Their deluded minds cannot see me. The unborn, the changeless, the undying. And Krishna says it is supremely rare that someone attains this, but those who go to the grave understanding that he is all there is are released from the wheel of life and death. He says, oh, That's a sweet deal. Yeah. All realms up to the realm of Brahma are subject to rebirth. But those who attain me, Arjuna, will never be reborn again. If you know that one single day or one single night, single night of Brahma lasts more than four billion years, you will understand day and night. When day comes, all things emerge from the depths of unmanifest nature. 
When night comes, all things dissolve into the unmanifest again. These multitudes of beings in an endless, beginningless cycle helplessly dissolve when Brahma's night comes and emerge once more at his dawn. But beyond this unmanifest nature is another unmanifest state, a primal existence that is not destroyed when all things dissolve. This is the eternal unmanifest, and is called the ultimate goal. Men who reach this, my supreme dwelling, are never reborn. In this section of the Gita, what seems to be happening is Krishna is slowly and steadily getting more intense and cosmic. And in the context of the story, we go from this eye of the storm, philosophical dis discussion of yoga, to this rising action, building the tension as we get to the back part of the book. And by chapter 9, Krishna begins ramping up the divine revelations even more. How do you get... <laughs> oh, you'll see. Okay. Oh, you will fucking see, More than dude. that? Oh, you will fucking see. I am the ritual and the worship, the medicine and the mantra, the butter burnt in the fire, and I am the flames that consume it. I am the father of the universe and its mother, essence and goal of all knowledge, the refiner, the sacred om, and the threefold Vedas. I am the beginning and the end, origin and dissolution, refuge, home, true lover, womb, and imperishable seed. I am the heat of the sun. I hold back the rain and release it. I am death and the deathless, and all that is or is not. And by chapter 10, Arjuna seems to start to understand. Arjuna said, you, Lord, are the supreme freedom, the supreme abode, the eternal person, the primordial God, all-pervading, birthless. This is how the great sages described you, the divine Narada, Asita, Devala, and Vyasa. And now you yourself confirm it. Everything you have told me, Krishna, I believe is true. Neither the gods nor the demons can grasp your infinite forms. You alone know yourself, through yourself, Lord of all beings, cause and origin, master of the universe, God of gods. Tell me now in detail the divine self-manifestations by which you pervade these worlds and grace them with so much splendor. How can I know you, Krishna? Which of your many forms should I visualize, Lord of Yoga, as I focus my thoughts on you? And Krishna tells him in this just so long and beautiful passage all the things he is. He is Vishnu. He is Shiva. He is, he is the moon. He is the mind. He is the self. He is the ocean, the Ganges, time, death, the speaker, and the listener. He is all things and all things are within him. And Arjuna says... I do not doubt that you are what you say you are, Lord, and yet I want to see for myself the splendor of your ultimate form. If you think I am strong enough, worthy enough to endure it, grant me now, Lord, a vision of your vast, imperishable self. And the blessed Lord said, Look, Arjuna, thousands, millions of my divine forms, beings of all kinds and sizes, of every color and shape. Look, the sun gods, the gods of fire, dawn, sky, wind, storm, wonders that no mortal has ever beheld. Look! Look, Arjuna, the whole universe, all things animate or inanimate, are gathered here. Look, enfolded inside my infinite body. But since you are not able to see me with mortal eyes, I will grant you divine sight. Look, look, the depths of my power. Krishna then transforms. Oh! He explodes out into the psychedelic fucking nightmare of a vision. It is like a Lovecraftian in how Arjuna cannot take it, right? That's that's what happens here. The glimpse beyond the veil. Yeah, that's what he's saying as he does this. Well, he, he asked to see the ultimate form. He did. <laughs> After he had spoken these words, Krishna, the great lord of yoga, revealed to Arjuna his majestic transcendent limitless form. With innumerable mouths and eyes, faces too marvelous to stare at, Dazzling ornaments, innumerable weapons uplifted, flaming, crowned with fire, wrapped in pure light, with celestial fragrance. He stood forth as the infinite God, composed of all wonders. 
If a thousand suns were to rise and stand in the noon sky blazing, such brilliance would be like the fierce brilliance of that mighty self. Arjuna saw the whole universe unfolded, with its countless billions of life forms gathered together in the body of the god of gods. Trembling with awe, his blood chilled, and the hair standing up on his flesh, he bowed and, joining his palms, spoke these words to the Lord. Arjuna said, I see all gods in your body and multitudes of beings, Lord, and Brahma on his lotus throne and the seers and the shining angels. I see you everywhere with billions of arms, eyes, bellies, faces, without end, middle or beginning. Your body, the whole universe, Lord. Crown bearing mace and discus, you dazzle my vision, blazing in the measureless, massive sun-flame splendor of your radiant form. You are the deathless, the utmost goal of all knowledge, the world's base, the guardian of the eternal law, the primordial person. I see you beginningless, endless, infinite in power with a billion arms, the sun and moon, your eyeballs, the flames of your mouth, lighting the whole universe with splendor. You alone fill all space, and the three worlds shudder when they see your astounding, terrifying form. Your stupendous form, your billions of eyes, limbs, bellies, mouths, dreadful fangs, seeing them the worlds tremble, and so do I. As you touch the sky, many hued, gape mouth, your huge eyes blazing, my innards tremble, my breath stops, my bones turn to jelly. Seeing your billion fanged mouths blaze like the fires of doomsday, I faint, I stagger, I despair, have mercy on me, Lord Vishnu. All Dhritarashtra's men, all these multitudes of kings, Bhishma, Drona, Karna, with all our warriors behind them, are rushing headlong into your hideous, gaping, knife-fanged jaws. I see them with skulls crushed, their raw flesh stuck to your teeth. As the rivers and many torrents rush towards the ocean, all these warriors are pouring down into your blazing mouths. As moths rush to a flame and are burned in an instant, all beings plunge down your gullet and instantly are consumed. You gulp down worlds everywhere, swallowing them in your flames and your rays, Lord Vishnu. Fill all the universe with dreadful brilliance. Who are you in this terrifying form? Have mercy, Lord. Grant me even a glimmer of understanding to prop up my staggering mind. And the blessed Lord said, I am death. Shatterer of worlds, annihilating all things. With or without you, these warriors and their facing armies will die. Therefore stand up, win glory, conquer the enemy, rule. Already I have struck them down. You are just my instrument, Arjuna. Drona, Bhishma, Jayadratha, Karna, and the other great heroes have already been killed by me. Fight, without hesitation, kill them. And with that, Arjuna breaks again. He falls to his knees in terror, stammering realization and apologies for a thousand imagined sins, begging for mercy and forgiveness, and he asks Vish Vishnu to take again his Krishna form merely for the sake of Arjuna's sanity. And the Blessed Lord does, and he returns to the form of the smiling, blue-skinned human. Hey, I'm an alien. <laughs> <laughs> and he tells Arjuna that Arjuna is the only one who will ever see that exact manifestation of him. Which strikes me very much, you know, like Holy Guardian Angel, that, that shit, it's, that was Arjuna's vision. That was the thing that would break Arjuna's mind and no one else's, really. Mm -hmm. That was Arjuna's vision of God that can never be translated to another. The vision that you've been granted is difficult to attain. Even the gods are always longing to behold me like this. Not by study or rites or alms or aesthetic practice can I be seen in this cosmic form of you have you've just seen me. Only by single-minded devotion can I be known as I truly am, Arjuna, can I be seen and entered. He who acts for my sake, loving me, free of attachment, with benevolence towards all beings, will come to me in the end. So when Krishna or Vishnu or God or whatever says, me, what's he talking about? 
everything. Yeah. And I think people get caught up in this idea that because this thing is personified in like a literary sense in the Gita and other texts, like that it means God is the old man in the sky, a person that created all of this. Oh, no. No. He's talking, what Krishna is talking about is the thing that has also been called the Tao, right? The indescribable center, the great mystery, the engine that spins at the core of all things that can only be known and never described. The Tao is not a fucking dude, no. <laughs> you know, uh, and I think that's really important because it turns the message from obey the will of the giant man <laughs> to keeping your focus on the light and transient, ever changing mystery, the eternal feeling of being at the core of all being. Right. Right. No, because the Tao is not a dude, but you it will be expressed through many dudes that you meet, probably. Yeah, because it's through all dudes that you all, meet. all fucking things. And Arjuna says, one man loves you with pure devotion. They start talking again. And now he knows what the fuck he's talking to. And he says, one man loves you with pure devotion. Another man loves the unmanifest. Which of these two understands yoga more deeply? And the blessed Lord said, those who love and revere me with unwavering faith, always centering their minds on me, they are the most perfect in yoga. But those who revere the imperishable, the unsayable, the unmanifest, the all-present, the inconceivable, the exalted, the unchanging, the eternal, mastering their senses, acting at all times with equanimity, rejoicing in the welfare of all beings, they too will reach me at last. But their path is much more arduous because for embodied things, the unmanifest is obscure and difficult to attain. Yeah, so basically like the monk who can focus on Krishna forever and do nothing but, yeah, that's the easiest way to escape the wheel of life and death. Mm -hmm. But... The people who just live and live well, they will eventually reach me too, but it's a harder road. And then Krishna goes on to say that, yes, while keeping focus on him is the purest way of yoga, and you can train yourself to do it fucking whatever, dude. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Then he lays out essentially what the whole state of being he's trying to describe is. He who has let go of hatred, who treats all beings with kindness and compassion, who is always serene, unmoved by pain or pleasure, free of the eye and mind self-controlled, firm, and patient, his whole mind focused on me, that man is the one I love best. He who neither disturbs the world nor is disturbed by it, who is free of all joy, fear, envy, that is the man, that man is the one I love best. He who is pure, impartial, skilled, unworried, calm, selfless in all undertakings, that man is the one I love best. He who devoted to me is beyond joy and hatred, Grief and desire, good and bad fortune. That man is the one I love best. In many ways, the final chapters are restatings of the lessons already imparted. The Gita has a flow of Krishna saying, act without attachment to result and keep your focus on how I am at the core of all action. And Arjuna saying, I don't understand. Or what if I can't? And Krishna saying, well, think of it this other way. Or, well, here's another picture of what that looks like. <laughs> right. It's the same message again and again, just restated like a thousand different ways, mm -hmm. which really works as a thing, as like a piece of poetry to read, right? In chapter 13, Krishna explores the concepts of the field and the knower of the field. He begins by defining the field. It represents the body as well as the physical world and all of its phenomena. This includes the senses, the mind, the elements that constitute the material universe. Essentially, the field is everything that is subject to change, perception, and experience. Then Krishna introduces the knower of the field, the soul or consciousness, the soul or consciousness within, which is the true self. The knower is what observes, experiences, and understands the field. It's the eternal aspect of our existence, distinct from the physical and ever-changing. 
True knowledge, Krishna explains, involves understanding the distinction between the field and its knower. It's about recognizing the transient nature of the physical world, but the permanence of the soul. Mm. He delves into the various aspects that constitute the fields, the five elements, uh, the ego, the intellect, the unmanifested, and the ten senses. Krishna also discusses the three gunas again. I always keep wanting to add a little R onto the end of that, but I'm from Rhode Island, so you know. You know? The three gunas. Th there are three types of gunas. Yeah, the, the sattvic gunar, the rajak gunar, and the tamasic gunar. Yes. One can goon for these three different reasons, and it's important to always be sattvic in your gooning. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Which influences human behavior and perception. Krishna then describes the traits of one who truly understands the nature of the field and the knower. Such a person perceives the eternal soul within all beings and transcends the distinctions imposed by the material world. The body is called the field, Arjuna. The one who watches whatever happens within it, wise man, call him the knower. I am the knower of the field in every body, Arjuna. Genuine knowledge means knowing both the field and its knower. Listen, and I will explain the nature of the field, what changes take place in it, who is the knower, and what his great powers are. The sages have sung of these truths in sacred hymns and in many powerful and well-argued reasonings about God. The five elements, the eye sense... The understanding, the ten senses, the mind, the unmanifest, and the five domains of the senses. Desire and aversion, pleasure and pain, consciousness, will, all these components make up the field with its various changes. Humility, patience, sincerity, non-violence, uprightness, purity, devotion to one's spiritual teacher, constancy, self-control, dispassion towards objects of the senses, freedom from the eye sense, insight into the evils of birth, sickness, old age, and death, detachment, absence of clinging to son, wife, family, and home, to un an unshakable equanimity in good fortune or in bad, an unwavering devotion to me above all things, an intense love of solitude, distaste for involvement in worldly affairs, persistence in knowing the self and awareness of the goal of knowing. All this is called true knowledge. What differs from it is called ignorance. I will teach you what should be known. Knowing it, you are immortal. It is the supreme reality which transcends both being and non-being. Its hands and its feet are everywhere. Everywhere its eyes, heads, mouths. Everywhere its ears. It dwells in all worlds, containing all things. Though lacking senses itself, it shines through the world of the senses, unattached, all-sustaining, experiencing the gunas yet above them. Outside, yet within all beings, motionless, always moving. Subtle beyond comprehension, far yet nearer than near, indivisible, though it seems divided in separate bodies. It is what sustains all things, what devours them, what creates them. It is the light of all lights, beyond all darkness. It is knowledge, and the, the object and goal of all knowledge. It is seated in the hearts of all beings. This in brief is the field, knowledge and the object of knowledge. A devotee who understands this is ready for my state of being." The chapters of the Divine Revelation are far and away the best and most most beautiful, but there are beautiful things to be found throughout. Like I said, go fucking read it for yourself. But I do want to discuss the Gunas. <laughs> I like the Gunas. The I Gunas are too. an interesting concept. I like the concept. Yeah. In chapter 14, the Gita delves into, the, in, into this concept, the three fundamental qualities or modes that govern human behavior and the nature of the universe. Krishna says... Nature for me is a womb. In nature I plant my seed, and from this seed of mine bursts forth, burst forth the origin of all beings. 
Whatever life forms Arjuna develop in any womb, nature is their primal womb and I am their seed-giving father. The three gunas born of nature, sattva, rajas, and tamas, bind to the mortal body, the deathless embodied self. Of these three, sattva, untainted, luminous, free from sorrow, binds by means of attachment to knowledge and joy, Arjuna. Rajas is marked by passion, born of craving and attachment. It binds the embodied self to never-ending activity. Thomas, ignorance born, deludes all embodied beings. It binds them, Arjuna, by means of dullness, indolence, and sleep. Sattva causes attachment to joy, rajas to action, and Thomas, obscuring knowledge, attaches beings to dullness. So, the three gunas. Sattva, goodness, characterized by purity and harmony. Sattva leads to wisdom and understanding. A person dominated by sattva is detached, compassionate, and wise. I guess it could work in a, in a BuzzFeed way. Like, you can be dominated by one of the gunas, mm -hmm. you know? However, an excess of sattva can bind one to feelings of happiness and knowledge, potentially leading to complacency. Yeah, kind of like, I don't know, toxic positivity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, love and light, all is love and light. Or like someone needs you to like, I don't know, save them from a burning building and you're like, everything is only love. You know, <laughs> you're like, no, something sucked, dude. We need your help. It's time for action. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rajas passion is the force of movement and action. It's driven by desires and ambitions, often leading to restlessness and attachment. Uh, a person influenced by Rajas is active, ambitious, but also potentially greedy and discontented. V Rajas is very much the attachment to result, Guna, you know, manipulative, mm -hmm. sort of mercurial right thomas ignorance is the heaviest of the gunas it's a heavy guna god damn it <laughs> it's characterized by inertia darkness and confusion it leads to delusion and ignorance a person under the sway of thomas of thomas is often lazy apathetic and prone to procrastination and misunderstanding and krishna explains that all beings everything is subject to the influence of these gunas which arise from nature itself they compete for dominance shaping one's character and destiny he says if a being dies in a state where the quality of sattva prevails, he goes to the stainless heavens of those who have seen the truth. If he dies when rajas prevails, he is born among those attached to action. If tamas prevails, he is born among the deluded. The fruit of action well done is sattvic and without a stain. The fruit of rajas is suffering, and ignorance the fruit of tamas. From sattva knowledge is born, from rajas restlessness and greed, Dullness and confusion arise from Thomas and ignorance also. Men of sattva go upward. Men of rajas remain in between. Men of Thomas, lowest of all, sink downward. And Krishna says that the ultimate goal is to transcend the gunas. This is achieved through self-realization and detachment, by becoming a witness to these qualities, not being swayed by them. The one who transcends the gunas is steady, unaffected by adversity, and remains the same, regardless of enjoy or sorrow. Chapter 16 the Gita is a discussion between like divine and demonic natures inherent in human beings. Yeah. I'm going to guess that you, you, at this point you can probably, you probably know where those are. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Like being, yep. being lazy and angry is bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Fearlessness, purity of heart, cultivation of spiritual knowledge, self-control is good. Yeah. You know, uh, hypocrisy is bad. Mm -hmm. Conceit's bad. Bad. Yeah. 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 You know, it's that shit. We all know that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we don't really need to dwell on that because it's just kind of like every, we all kind of know. We know what's divine and what's divine. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. In 17, 
the, the Gita explores how different types of faith can be influenced by the three gunas. Interesting. So there's like sattvic, rajic, and tamasic faiths. Uh, Arjuna says, There are men who worship with faith and yet who reject the scriptures. What guna prevails in them, Lord? Sattva, rajas, or tamas? And the blessed Lord said, There are three kinds of faith in men, each ruled by the guna inherent in the nature of the man. Listen as I explain this. Every man's faith conforms with his inborn nature, Arjuna. Faith is a person's core. Whatever his faith is, he is. Sattvic men worship the gods, Rajasic, demigods and demons, Tamasic, the hordes of dark spirits and the ghosts of the dead. Sattvic faith are more inclined to worship gods and divinities who embody purity, knowledge and harmony. Their practices are disciplined and their offerings are made with sincerity and a pure heart for the love of the god they're offering it to. Rajasic faith is... Like money and love spells? Give me some shit. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> Seeking rewards and benefits. The practices may involve significant effort, but it's what drives them. Mm -hmm. the, it, Intent matters. Yeah. They're driven by desire and ambition. The deities they worship are typically associated with power and prosperity. People with Tomastic faith are drawn towards worshiping spirits and ghosts. They're attached to the dead, right? And that's kind of... The, their practices involve superstition, black magic, and rituals not sanctioned by the scriptures. Mm. I, you know, this type of faith is often associated with ignorance and misguided beliefs. I would probably say that, like... Yeah, they're attached to what is past. They can't mm -hmm. let go of shit, and that, that's, that weighs them the fuck down. Right. Krishna then discusses the nature of austerity, which is also influenced by the gunas. Sattvic austerity involves purity, serenity, and discipline of mind, speech, and body. Rajasic austerity is performed with self selfish motives and for show. Look at me getting up at 4 a.m. every fucking day. Look at me grind. going to the gym. Look at my grind set. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, like, you can also go to the gym in a sattvic way. You can go to the Absolutely. gym in a Tomasic way, too. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Tomasic authority is characterized by foolishness and self-torture. I'm a bad person, so I have to do this. You know? <laughs> I need to do 100 push-ups or else I, I suck. I su yeah, exactly. This chapter also touches on the types of food preferred by people of different goodness. <laughs> and Krishna uses the food as sort of like a metaphor for every other category of things. Yes, there are three kinds of food as well. And worship, control, and charity also divide into three kinds. Here are the distinctions among them. Foods that are sattvic are drawn to promote vitality, health, pleasure, strength, and a long life, and are fresh, firm, succulent, and tasty. <laughs> Foods that please the rajasic, bitter or salty or sour, hot or harsh or pungent, cause pain, disease, and discomfort. The preferred foods of the tamasic are stale, overcooked, tasteless, contaminated, impure, filthy, putrid, and rotten. Anybody that wants their steak well done. Yeah, well, McDonald's is Tomas is Tomasic food, right? <laughs> yes. And as a metaphor, basically, so basically Anthony Bourdain was just ripping off the Gita. Western imperialism strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> not, not really. Then he goes on to describe three different types of control divided by gunas, which is also really interesting. Honoring the gods, the priests, the teachers and sages, purity, nonviolence, chastity and upright uprightness. All this is control of the body, speaking the truth with kindness, honesty that causes no pain, and the recitation of scripture, this is control of speech. Serenity, gentleness, silence, benevolence, self-restraint, purity of being, compassion, this is control of the mind. When these three levels of control are practiced with faith and diligence and with no desire for results, such control is called sattvic. Okay, so for your body, speech, and mind. Okay, rajasic control. By its nature, 
unwavering and unstable is performed out of pride or to gain respect, admiration, and honor. Control is tomasic when used by deluded men to mortify their flesh or to gain the power to cause harm to others. Yeah, which is the difference between being a leader and being manipulative, right? Like, or being persuasive in a good sense versus being a manipulative shithead. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I was watching this show called The Garden, Commune or Cult. And this this one guy was like, hey, everybody, we should like make a tornado shelter because there's been a bunch of tornado warnings. Yeah. And this one lady's like, I don't know. We can just get in the bus or run down the hill. (laughs) He's like, no, that's a horrible idea. And he kind of like becomes the the de facto leader for a time. And it's always interesting to watch those roles play out. But yeah, sometimes it's good for somebody to step up and uh, take control. Well, yeah, I mean, Cody and I were talking about this, like, because he was saying, like, well, sometimes you have to be manipulative as a, like, a leader and shit. I'm like, well, I know what you're saying, but that's the wrong word. You're, you know what I mean? Like, that's not, that's, you're informing someone why, what they want to do and what you want to do are in line with one another. You're not. Right telling them lies and shit to get them to do something against their will without realizing it. Well, like you can go in the bus if you want to, but we're still going to make the shelter. Yeah. 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 You don't have to use it. (laughs) Yeah. Or, or, you know, if you really don't want to build it, like we're not going to deny you entrance into it. Like, you know, but I think here's why we should build the shelter. Yeah. The last chapter is chapter 18, Moksha Sannyasa Yoga, which is both a restating of the main lessons by which is a restating of the main lessons by way of explaining what sacrifice or renunciation really means. And like, think back to Om Shinrikyo and their so-called like renunciates, right? Just leaving everything and getting trapped in an evil cult that really, they really thought they were reading the Bhagavad Gita. That was one of their big, you know, it begins with Arjuna asking Krishna about the true nature of renunciation and detachment, the true nature of sacrifice. And Krishna responds by explaining that renunciation is giving up actions motivated by desire and detachment is relinquishing the attachment to the fruits of all actions. He clarifies that actions should not be abandoned. Rather, it's the motives behind the actions that should be forsaken. Arjuna said, teach me this lesson, Krishna, what it means to renounce, what it means to relinquish, and the difference between the two. And the blessed Lord said, To give up desire-bound actions is what is meant by renouncing. To give up the result of all actions is what the wise call to relinquish. Some sages say that all action is tainted and should be relinquished. Others permit only acts of worship, control, and charity. Here's the truth. These acts of worship, control, and charity purify the heart and therefore should not be relinquished but performed. But even the most praiseworthy acts should be done with complete non-attachment and with no concern for results. That is my final judgment. Relinquishment is of three kinds. When an obligatory action is relinquished because of delusive thinking, that is tamasic. When a man relinquishes action because it is hard or painful, that relinquishment is rajasic and cannot guide him toward freedom. But when a man out of duty, a man performs an obligatory action relinquishing all results, that relinquishment is called sattvic. The man who is able to relinquish beyond doubt does not avoid unpleasant actions, nor is he attached to actions that are pleasant. An embodied being can never relinquish actions completely. To relinquish the results of actions is all that can be required. For those who cling to it, action has three results when they die, desired, undesired, and mixed. But for those who renounce it, it has none. And then again, there's three types of actions according to the gunas, you know? And... 
Krishna emphasizes that action should be performed in a spirit of duty, again, without attachment or desire for personal gain. I like the part about um, when a man relinquishes action because it's hard or painful. Yeah. For Jossic and cannot guide him towards freedom. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. not wanting to do something because it's, it's too it hard. It's unpleasant. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's selfish as shit. Yeah. Yeah. Krishna says... Knowledge, action, and agent are of three kinds, according to the guna that prevails in each one. Listen, and I will explain these distinctions. Knowledge that sees in all things a simple, imperishable being, undivided among the divided. This kind of knowledge is sattvic. Rajasic knowledge perceives a multiplicity of beings, each one existing by itself, separate from all the others. Knowledge is called tamasic when it clings to one thing as if it were the whole and has no concern for the true cause and essence of things. I like that a lot. Like, sattvic knowledge is understanding that everything's all one. Rajasic knowledge is the distinctions, the classifications, the separateness. Mm -hmm. And then tamasic is, this is my thing. This is the only thing that matters. This one's important. Yeah. Right? And then he gets into how duties vary according to one's nature and position in society. He advises following one's own duty, however imperfect, rather than someone else's duty, however well-performed. And then Krishna reiterates the supreme goal of life, unwavering devotion to the divine. He encourages surrender to the divine will, promising that such devotion will lead to peace and ultimate liberation. The chapter, and thereby the Gita, concludes with Krishna imparting the essence of its teachings, understanding the importance of duty, devotion, and detachment, and recognizing the divine presence in all aspects. Uh, Krishna says, Now listen to my final words. Now listen to my final words, the deepest secret of all. I am speaking for your own welfare, since you are precious to me. If you focus your mind on me and reveal, revere me with all your heart, you will surely come to me, this I promise, because I love you. Relinquishing all your duties, take refuge in me alone. Do not fear, I will free you from the evils of birth and death. These teachings must not be spoken to men without self-control and piety, or to men whose hearts are closed to my words. He who teaches this primal secret to those who love me has acted with the greatest love and will come to me beyond doubt. No one can do me a service that is more devoted than this, and no one on earth is more precious to me than he is. Whoever earnestly studies this sacred discourse of ours, I consider that he has worshipped and loved me with the yoga of knowledge. Even the man who hears it with faith and an open mind, he also, released, will go to the joyous heavens of the pure. Have you truly heard me, Arjuna? Has my teaching entered your heart? Have my words now driven away your ignorance and delusion? And Arjuna said, Krishna, I see the truth now. By your immeasurable kindness, I have no more doubts. I will act according to your command. And then Arjuna and his whole family is just absolutely fucking slaughtered. <laughs> they just, they don't win. No, they're just fucking destroyed. Well, five against 100. Well, they had, they both had armies, you know. They had, yeah. But the other guys had Krishna's army the whole time. Like, they're mostly fucking destroyed, and it's really tragic, actually, and Krishna's kind of a bastard in that way. I mean, there's, like, five times the Iliad and Odyssey combined left in the Mahabharata, so, like, it's not like it just ends with that. There's a journey afterwards. doesn't end great for Prince Arjuna, though. Uh, I'm pretty but sure not. You know I haven't read the rest of the Mahabharata. It's fine, because he went back to, to everything. Yeah. Vishnu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was telling him that it's all right. Uh, there's, like, Star Wars Jedi ghosts and shit. Like, not really, but kind of. The way the Gita ends is with closing out part of the frame story, actually. And, like, the camera, you know, cuts back to a poet 
you know, hundreds of years later saying this. By the poet Vyasa's kindness, I heard this most secret doctrine directly from the mighty lord of yoga, Krishna himself. O king, the more I remember this wondrous and holy discourse between the lord and Arjuna, the more I shudder with joy. And as often as I remember the lord's vast, wondrous form, each time I am astonished, each time I shudder with joy. Where Krishna is, lord of yoga, and Arjuna, the archer, there, surely, I think, is splendor and virtue and spiritual wealth. So, apparently, this poet also got to see the cosmic vision that Krishna said was reserved for Arjuna alone. So he's a liar. Fuck it, I'm just going to keep being Tomasic in all that I do, I guess. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> so what, do you, what do you think about all that? There's a lot. I mean, there's so much I caught, right? What do you think about all that? I think that it is a, a cosmic story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of truth. Yeah. Do you see why I like it for the cinematic quality? Yeah. I mean, that fucking, that climax is, it's over the course of like three or four chapters that Krishna is just slowly ramping up and ramping up and ramping up. And then Arjuna's like, show me it, show it all to me. And he does. And it scares the shit out of him. Yeah, of course it's <laughs> Fucking sick. I saw an Amazon review from some woman who had read this, who like had this assigned uh, assigned to her for her yoga class. And she gave it one star saying it was violent and radical because it amounts to basically Krishna or God saying, do what you're told and kill for me. That's certainly a reading. <laughs> it's not a good one, but it certainly is one. It's all metaphor and allegory. And as we see, like Krishna's teaching is all about going back to the core, the center, uh, the everything within everyone and living without desire and without fear. The war is life. We're all Arjuna. And yeah, there's some nonsense about the caste system and shit. Whatever. That was life then. And yeah, Krishna does literally say, I am death, shatterer of worlds. These men are already dead. It's me who killed them. You are my instrument. But a spirituality that doesn't acknowledge the brutality and horror and tragedy inherent in the story of life is disingenuous at best and dangerous at worst. Arjuna is the middle brother. The talk happens at the center of a battlefield in the center of a longer epic. It's this continuously self-reinforcing literary device to bring us back to our own core as we, like Arjuna, deal with the shit we'd rather not deal with and inherent inevitable tragedy. If you think you have no more tragedy to deal with in your life, you're fucking wrong. You know, no matter where you are in life, like yeah. there's nothing, no more sad shit coming, no more horror coming. Yeah, you're fucking wrong. It is. Sorry. And like it's that's an unavoidable part of life. Yeah. And thus it's an unavoidable part of God, it's just, which is like, I've never quite understood the whole problem of evil thing. You know what I mean? It's like, God's not a, a good dude up there. Right. It's innumerable eyes and mouths and fangs and all of life. No, it's into its sky father. It's Big Daddy. Yeah. It's a Big Daddy with a beard. No, no, no. Sorry. Sorry, dog. It's it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's awesome in the true sense of the word, right? And yeah, so I don't know. I just wanted to go through some of, not all of my favorite verses, because I wanted to like actually explain the whole thing. But yeah, I don't know. I just think it's it's really cool to see what the shit at the core of a lot of the stuff we talk about kind of actually is about mm -hmm. and like where a lot of those lessons come from and i mean the two of cups that's arjuna and, and krishna <laughs> think it's their love yes yeah like yeah, literally yeah, yeah. though like yeah. actually yeah 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 that's the um it's the love and understanding that comes from shit the student and teacher the a conversation that happens during an eye of the storm moment mm -hmm. um vulnerability right outpouring of emotions krishna breaking down you know, right. that's, that's two of cups. 
feeling safe to break down. It's also, I mean, you see now where do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. That's also, that's the Gita. That's true. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's you gotta have that foundation says. of love. Yeah. And like the whole, like, well, doing your duty imperfectly is better than doing someone else's perfectly. Like mm-hmm. do your, your shit that is your shit and you do it without attachment and, or lust of result as fucking Crowley's ass put it. But like, this has influenced so much this idea of a love for all things at the core of perfect action. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not much more to say than that. I think. Good episode. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for everybody that listened and spent their time with us. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for supporting us, listening and, and all that. If you like what we do, you can leave a rating and review. You can tell your friends. You can tell your charioteers. You can tell God himself. <laughs> and you can also join our Patreon. It really helps the show. We don't advertise. Um, you'd like not to because fuck them. But hey, it's nice to get paid. If you like what you do and you want to give back, you can get bonus episodes and access to our patron-only Discord at patreon.com slash the nonsense bizarre, starting at just $5 a month. And yeah, and take care of yourselves and like be kind to yourself this holiday season. Be kind to each other. Yeah, people are people are crazy out there, dog. Like it's uh try try to be as sattvic as possible. Don't get don't let the holiday season make you tomasa. Yeah. Because it, it can. It really can. And like just try not to let it. Alright guys, take care of yourselves. Take care. Bye. <laughs>